Kevin Vallier is professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University and author of Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separatism, Trust in a Polarized Age, and now All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. That is our topic today. Welcome again, actually, Professor Vallier. Thanks so much for having me on. I should give the proper French pronunciation, Vallier, right? Yes, although um, it's quasi-Americanized. It's just Vallier. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, jumping right in, you speak of liberalism as really the first major secular ideology to come along uh, when 250 years ago, Christianity started to lose its dominance of Western society. So liberalism came along when, when, when Christianity receded. Liberalism was the first first option. I mean, I, I mean, it's a generalization, I know. Yeah, yeah, it's a gradual thing that happens. So, you know, I think that you get the choice between confessional Protestant and Catholic states. But then there are Protestant states uh, that feel like they have to water things down. I'm thinking primarily of like the Netherlands and, you know, post-Elizabethan settlement uh, in England. And as that starts to open up, then you get things that start to look kind of like liberalism. I think it kind of kind of comes on gradually in a way. But French Revolution, I think, is a, a pretty sharp one of a certain sort of hard-edged liberalism. Okay. Okay. And then... You and again, we're we're talking, you know, big picture. We, we know exceptions and qualifications, of course. But just the second you say was socialism. Now, did socialism derive from liberalism, or was there an independent strand that 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 provoked it? I think there's an independent strand, and it's chiefly um, the rise of sort of uh, in, uh, capitalism. Um, in particular, the question of when there's enough capital accumulation, who should own it? And the liberals were the chief ones saying, well, you know, this is something you should leave to private property. So while there are some um, points of overlap between liberal and liberalism and socialism, for instance, opposition to a coercively established religion, they differ really sharply uh, on, the, on the question of private property rights. Now, we're in a condition in which liberalism itself has lost its authority. Maybe not of it, not its power, but certainly lost its, its authority in the United States. Uh, another big picture question to sketch out, what, what has happened in the last, maybe, would you say 20 or 30 years? Since the end of the Cold War, maybe? The, the, when, when, the, when the liberal, liberal decline started to... to what, what did it? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's complex given the way I think of liberalism in a series of waves um, and of different, different versions you know, there's a kind of Cold War liberalism that is in the background of sort of progressive and conservative disputes until the end of the Cold War. I think it's definitely true. So that's a, that's a kind of liberalism. Um, and after the Cold War, I think the unity that came from having a clear ideological contrast, um, particularly with the Soviet Union, um, highlighted differences between those those positions. So I see progressivism and American conservatism as kind of hybrids. So Progressivism is a kind of liberal socialist hybrid. Uh, American conservatism is a kind of liberalism conservatism hybrid. And so once the hybrids beat the main competitor, right, um, then their differences started to become more salient. Now, even until 2012, I think 
if that wasn't it wasn't obvious that there was going to be a kind of collapse of legitimacy. Just look at the Romney sort of Obama campaign, right? I mean, you've got a traditional, you know, conservative liberal, um, and you've got a traditional socialist liberal, or you know, these high, these hybrid sort of positions. But what they weren't counting on, I think, either side uh, was something uh, in the 20th century that that started to end. The 20th century is very strange because you had secularizing movements all over the world. Um, in the 19th century, you pretty much just had Western Europe, and so liberalism just explodes, and then you know, um, socialism uh, pretty soon thereafter. And one thing that they do collectively is they suppress the political expression of the great religion. So even if it marks a socialism or just milder um, sort of radical liberalish socialism of the sort that you see in, say, Turkey or India, people just kind of thought that the, the, the great religions were done having political influence. Well, it just turned out that was false. Socialism was just violently suppressing many of them and sort of repressing them in lighter ways than others. And liberals are doing some of that too, such in France. And so what happened was the natural human impulse um, to want to kind of link their religion and politics reasserted itself. And it's reasserting itself all over the world. Um, I think most forcefully in India, actually, of all places. And so the problem is liberalism's old problem. It's, it, it's sort of old foe, uh, organized religion. Um, was up the upswing and it didn't, it's not going away. And so I think one reason that liberalism lost legitimacy on the right was, was for that reason. The, the loss of liberalism on the left was, is a, it's a more complex story. Um, as liberalism got discredited, socialism started to get relatively more credibility. So you get this split in the hybrid, right? Um, and you start to see this, um, you, you start to see this on university campuses, um, and, you know, Hollywood in a few places, but it wasn't obvious. And if anything's made it obvious now that there's a distinct left leftism from liberalism, it's the Israeli Hamas war. Right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, now but now you see the cleavage and you can see kind of how weak the center left is in certain respects. Although you can also see, obviously, the internal flaws of of leftism on questions of race and so on. There's a total inconsistency there. Um, so, so essentially what's going on, you see illiberal conservatism. So what's going on is you had, you had these two hybrids, right? Conservatism, liberalism, and socialism, liberalism. And now they're just splitting apart. The liberal pieces are receding. And then the pure kind of conservative and the pure kind of socialist elements are growing in strength. So that's kind of my analysis of what's been going on. And, and we get down to, I mean, that, that, that's sort of the framing in, yes. in your book. And then we get down to a specific topic that will interest our listeners greatly. Uh, here we go. Catholic integralism, uh, as you're saying, is now an important rival uh, to, to liberalism or even the, hi the hybrid, the hybrid uh, uh, liberalisms. Uh, maybe just give us your definition of integralism. Sure. Um, so just by way of uh, contrast with liberalism and socialism, um, this is a theocentric theory of political authority and the political good. So what that means is that, it, uh, that polity has a somewhat different purpose and God is involved. Okay? So the first two of the three uh, claims of integralism are ones that most Christians can or do accept. The first one is that God authorizes the state to um, uh, pursue the temporal common good. Uh, the second claim is that God authorizes the church to pursue the spiritual common good of its members and to preach the gospel to bring as many people in as it can. So that's those are like, not radical. Those are like pretty center positions. But the interesting claim of integralism 
Um, and it was the Catholic Church's, I think, core central sort of position on church-state relations for centuries was this. Um, <clears throat> given how do these two um, polities integrate? How do they relate? It just wasn't on the table that they should go their separate ways because obviously the two polities had effects on one another. Um, and so the way that many people reasoned, especially when it was made ex as explicit as it could be in the Counter-Reformation, say in the works of Suarez and Bellamy, um, they said, look, the church is the nobler polity. It has a more important end, eternity. And so in cases where state policy is affecting the spiritual mission of the church, the church can tell a Christian state to make its jurisdiction available for spiritual ends. Now, that doesn't mean the church can take over everything the state does. It can't say, look, we'll run agricultural policy because, you know, people need to eat to go to mass. Instead, what was postulated is what Bellarmine called the indirect power of the pope and his bishops. What that meant is in spiritual affairs, for instance, with respect to communications policies, the spread of, say, Protestant um, ideas, these were things the state could and must regulate once the church had authorized it to do so. So the church has a kind of indirect sovereignty over the state, right? Only in spiritual affairs. Okay, and so, so Bellarmine calls this the indirect power, and it's a very common view in Catholicism. It's even being engaged seriously by Murray and Maritain in the first half of the 20th century. And then Madigan II rolls around, and it, be, it starts to look like a schismatic position after Dignitatis Humana. And in the 20th century, it's 21st century has come, it's come back for a variety of reasons. But yeah, so think about integralism this way. You have the God authorizes the state to pursue the temporal common good. God authorizes the church to pursue the eternal common good. And the church has a kind of indirect power or indirect sovereignty over the state owing to its nobler end. Hmm. Now you, you are very good. Very, I think that, that that's a very clear outline, I, I would say. You identify in the integralists, however, not just a, a set of beliefs, but an attitude too. Uh, yes. a, a certain aggressive uh, battle posture toward yes. the other side. Can you describe that further? Yeah, I mean, it kind of varies based on um, the two groups of integralists I identify. I call them the theorists and the strategists. The theorists are chiefly British. Figures like Thomas Pink, um, who, for instance, has argued for his position in First Things. I think his first piece was Conscious and Coercion in 2012, um, before even, say, Adrian Vermeule became Catholic four years later. So what the British were doing is they had a church-facing project in the sense that they looked at Western Europe and they were saying, okay, what's happened? Why has Catholicism collapsed? And people like Pink and Alan Finister and Thomas Green, Father Thomas Green, were saying, look, when any organization stops enforcing its rules, it's going to collapse. And its view about the church was that it wasn't enforcing its rules. However, they went a step further than most Catholics were willing to go. They said, you know, not only are ecclesiastical or canonical penalties appropriate, um, but historically in the church, civil penalties were in many cases appropriate for these same uh, crimes, such as heresy and apostasy. Now, I wouldn't take it there. I see the point about the importance of spiritual discipline, um, but they went, they went further, and they thought they were going further based on the historic teachings of the church. But that was always for them. And even if you read Pink today, he's writing about, say, when can you piously resist a pope? He doesn't care about American politics. His project is church-facing. But a few years later, you got a very different movement, particularly as Pater Edmund, who's also been published in First Things, um, imported a lot of these ideas to the United States, particularly in 2012 and 2013. And a whole variety of Americans got interested in, uh, not American, uh, American Catholic uh, young intellectuals got interested. 
including, incidentally, some on the left. There were a few integral socialists for, for a period of time. And they had a state-facing project. And the state-facing project was we, we have to move against every last form of liberalism. And maybe we won't get to what was best, but at least we'll have an account of what the best is, whereas traditional American politics, you know, does not have anything but a liberal ideal, which, you know, has all kinds of, of problems. So liber integralism, you know, they know it's far away, but it's a kind of orienting or inspiring romantic and what I often call counter-revolutionary ideal. One of the ways this gets motivated is that many of the sort of uh, 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 state-facing American integralists, you know, people like Adrian Vermeule, Vladimir Papin, uh, Chad Pecknold, and I think now uh, Pat Deneen, they were um, they're a new generation of American Catholics saying that Catholicism in America can't be reconciled. This is something that comes up periodically in American Catholic history, and that's a huge debate, right? How much can we take on America? How much do we accept? How much do we reject? And they're saying, look, and they haven't put they don't put it quite this way, but the thought is like liberalism was a poison pill from the beginning. It was the sort of ill-begotten uh, son of Protestantism, which was also confused from the beginning. Um, it's just a generalization of the Protestant principle that everyone should make up his mind in matters of faith, and liberalism just universalizes that. Everyone should make up their minds about matters of faith and morality. Um, and that can't sustain itself. It has to be opposed with a full-blooded Catholic alternative, and not just Catholics kind of saying, well, well, we'll sort of take on some of these ideas without capitulating to it. So it's always, no, 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 no. You have to be completely serious, and you have to understand that liberals are revolutionaries. Oftentimes they just equate all liberalism with, say, French revolutionary liberalism, continental liberalism that was very anti-clerical. And so they said, look, they're going to come after us unless we come after them, and we have to replace the elite. One way I think Vermeule brought Denin in was if you look at his review of why liberalism failed in American Affairs 2020, he says very clearly, look, this decentralized stuff that Denin is for, it's not going to work unless we already have captured the state from the left, because the left's not going to let us be. That's not what they are. That's not who they are. They're not going to stop unless we stop them. And that's a common theme on the new right today. Um, so I think that's the aggressive posture. They've got a state-facing project. They've got an account of what's kind of historically gone wrong in America and who the powerful are today and what those powerful people want. Very good. There's another element, too, that you raise. It's something you call integralism's, quote, narrative allure. And you, you sort of suggest that sometimes political theorists don't sufficiently appreciate the, the psychological, emotional attraction of an ideology in the narrative it offers. You know, it, it's got to have a story. And often it's the story that grabs people. It's not the principles. It's not the ideals. It's not the premises. It's, it's the story. What is integralism's compelling story? Well, a lot of it is, is what I've said about liberalism. And if you go back to scripture, it, this relates to the title of the book. So it, it was sometimes, um, and in many cases, in the uh, medieval period and the early modern period, when you get to Matthew 4, and Satan is tempting Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world, the way it was often seen was that Satan had legitimate, not legitimate, but like had real power over all the uh, kingdoms of the world. And that when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, it's being taken from Satan. And it's the job of the church to grace the state and exorcise it. 
And so what the integralist does is they grasp the dangers of not having the kind of spiritual military and the spiritual polity that is the church exorcising and gracing the political order, just like it does for individuals, just like it does for small groups, right? It's got to do the same thing for states that it does for everything and everyone else, right? It bring it captive to Christ the King, okay? And if you don't do that, you're going to get Protestantism, or worse, you're going to get liberalism, or worse, you're going to get, say, Marxist socialism. Decay is inevitable because you're letting Satan rule. And so the spiritual military aspect of this that brings in so many young men, I think them see themselves as Christian soldiers. They're saying, look, Protestantism and also liberalism have gravely misled us about the character of the state because it has let us think that a non-Catholic state is anything but a demonic one or something in between. So that's what I think a lot of this is going on. It's the sense that we have not understood politics theologically and that once we understand politics theologically, we will see we are in a desperate and dangerous situation. Chapter 2 has a lengthy history of events and figures relevant to the course of integralism over the centuries. Let's jump to Vatican II in your history. Uh, the document, particularly Dignitatis Humani, uh, particularly issue of human dignity and religious coercion. What is the, the mainstream understanding of that coming out of Vatican II, and how, to inter how do integralists disagree? Great. So this is, I mean, this is a very, very important thing, because if it weren't for Tom Pink's reinterpretation of Dignitatis Humanae, integralism wouldn't exist. So let me give the mainline view and then give Pink's view. So um, the mainline view goes like this. Um, the human person has a universal right of religious freedom against any human power based in the dignity of the person is made in God's image. This doesn't obviate the state's traditional duty to the true religion, but what it does do is it rules out relig direct religious coercion forever because it cites the dignity of the person is made in God's image as the reason that people should have religious liberty after religious liberty after religious liberty. The Council Fathers are advocating for a kind of moderate establishment. That is, the church, the state can recognize the true religion, it can fund it in certain cases, but it must respect the freedom of religion of others, everyone. And the church even says that that's so clear from reason and revelation, that is, from natural and divine law, that the right of religious freedom is to be made part of the Constitution as a civil right of every single nation in the world. Um, and the problem with this is that it looks like it's intention, particularly with a document that had been uh, promulgated by Leo XIII exactly 80 years before, Immortality Day, where he's stating in detail what the ideal relationship is between church and state. And he uses an analogy that harkens back to integralism. And, and Pink thinks he was an integralist. This is a debate. But, but he says that there should be an orderly connection between the church and state that is on analogy with the relationship between soul and body. So it looks like Pope Leo XIII, who has tremendous authority in the revival of Thomism, in Rerum Novarum, in the formalization of Catholic social thought, um, and on and on and on. And Pink pulls this up and he says, you know, look, this is the church's self-understanding that there's to be a kind of integration. So how do we reconcile that with Dignitatis Humanae? Well, what many Catholics will do, even conservative ones, is say, well, Leo was wrong, or, you know, it's unclear, or something like that. And Pink says, uh-uh, we have to take the church's historical teaching and practice a lot more seriously than that. So how, how can we resolve this problem? And he has a bunch of work on continuity between Leo XIII and D.H. Dignitatis Humanae. And here's what he says. He says, Dignitatis Humanae does cover the right of the, of the individual and small groups against any human power. 
Church is not a human power, it's a divine power. And so what the what Dignitatis Humanae is not doing is it's not talking about the relationship between the individual and the church. And in fact, the Council Fathers said that they couldn't agree on the powers of the church against its members. So for instance, I gather that one, not from Pink's work, but I gather one of the disagreements was about, for instance, whether there should be heresy trials at all. You know, and, and the Council Fathers said, look, we can't agree on the authority of the church. And so we didn't talk about it. Okay, so far, so good. But here's the move Pink makes, as I understand it, but people can just read what he said in First Things in case I've gotten it, gotten it wrong. Um, here's one power that the, that the church was silent about. The power of the church to authorize the state to serve as its secular arm in certain cases. It just had nothing to say about that power. And so while it was making clear to the world that it's not going to exercise that power, that's a policy change, it didn't rule it out in principle. And so the, so the church did not rule out integralism in principle, even if many of the council fathers thought that that's what they were doing, because of the traditional teaching of the church about what's the ideal relationship between church and state. So, so Pink is saying, because the Dignitatis Humanae was silent on the rights of the church, and Leo is talking about the rights of the church, but Dignitatis Humanae is not, then there's a potential compatibility there. Now for Pink, this is, what's important is, um, uh, he has not, as far as I know, even called for the policy to be changed. He's just trying to state what the ideal is because he thinks it will help the church recover its self-conception as a polity that takes sin seriously. Okay? So, but the interpretation is that integralism isn't ruled out in principle. It's a policy change, but not a change in principle. And so there's no discontinuity between Leo and Dignitatis Humanae. Now, here's something that's very interesting about this. The mainline Catholics, particularly like intellectual leaders like John Finnis and Martin Ronheimer, they had debates with Pink. My assessment is Pink held his own. But also the, um, the traditionalists also resist Pink because they want to say that the council was corrupt, right? And they, want, they don't like the idea that there's uh, this kind of straightforward continuity because they've been saying, at least since Archbishop Lefebvre published They Haven't Crowned Him, that the whole th that there was some deep problem in Dignitatis Humanae. So, so Pink has actually been trying to thread the new needle pretty carefully. Um, and I think the, the, the reinterpretation is, it's, it's, very, it's very clever. Um, I don't think it ultimately uh, works. I thought it worked actually for a long time. I, I'm not quite sure it works, but, um, but it's certainly worth thinking about. Excellent. You know, let me, let me just say that Pink's I think you said this was Pink's uh, assumption that an institution that stops enforcing its own rules is going to collapse. I got to tell you, I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in academia many, many times. I, th I think that's an underappreciated, uh, you, you know, you let things slide, I mean, even for good intentions, uh, the, the institution, it, it's going it's, it's gonna to deteriorate. So anyway, uh, you assert that we have a particular, quote, symmetry conditional. That, that is central here. And the, and, the, and the conditional is, if states should promote natural goods, then states should promote supernatural goods too. Is this the core political premise of integralism? So chapter two is on history. Chapter three is on what I think the other powerful argument for integralism is. And I, I direct it directly against contemporary Catholic um, conservative political thought in the form of, say, John Finnis, Robbie George, and so on the new natural law theory. And they have the view that the church should, or the state should promote conditions under which people can realize natural goods. 
but not supernatural ones. The church should voluntarily offer supernatural goods, but it has no coercive power over the state in the interrealist sense. Um, and that's the mainline conservative Catholic position. It, I, you know, I think that's that's been the view for decades. And what I say is, okay, well, here's something integralism has over new natural law theory. It treats natural and supernatural goods symmetrically. It says, look, um, if the state should promote natural goods, it should promote all goods, right? And while, of course, you need the church's authorization to promote supernatural goods, once you've got it, you should do it. Because think about it. I mean, natural goods are temporal. They, they're finite, right? Um, supernatural goods are infinite. If the church is, or if the state's supposed to promote the good, why wouldn't it promote infinite goods as well as finite goods? So I give a number of arguments like that, and I think the integralist does have a kind of, I don't know, default position where they say, look, we're going we're gonna to treat goods symmetrically. We're going to say we're going to promote them all, okay, because we don't just care about people in this life, we care about the next life, right? And I think that's precisely how many people in the church reasoned Really, really, as soon as you get a uniquely Latin Christendom, um, I think this was a particularly common way of, of thinking, particularly once the church had kind of freed its liberty um, with, say, Gregory VII and the aftermath. Of course, the East has a different view there. All right. You, you know, um, we, 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 we won't get into this because I want to make sure that we get to another point, but let me just mentioned about the idea of coercion uh it is i mean i'm the integralists say wait wait you're worried about us being coercive look at how look at how the liberal state it keeps it keeps pushing and pushing against us it's been coercing us worse and worse every year come on give me a break is is that sort of the sort of the assumption about about uh it's their their view is that liberalism is a kind of um ascetic revolutionary force and that it, it really doesn't rest. The way I put it in the book is on the integralist view, liberalism is always hungry. Right. Right. So good, good. All right. All right. And we'll let, we'll let our readers uh, explore that, that further, because I think it's something that they experience <laughs> a lot of experience all the time, but let me get to the, uh, another issue. What's the transition plan. Okay. What, what you integralist, what, what kind of practical realistic program can you possibly imagine when we look at how things are at the present time? What, what would they say? So um, the British integralists tend to be pretty agnostic on this question. Um, the American integralists, though, if you look at Adrian Vermeule's strategic writings, so he's a piece in First Things called On Christian Strategy, which I commend to, to your listeners, um, because there he makes the claim, he says, look, there are periods of time where a kind of pagan hostile power rules. But they allow for statesmen that, um, say, are Jewish um, in the Old Testament or that are, that are Christians who are able to be good administrators, good leaders. But then when the regime collapses or discredits itself, there are people in power who are ready to go. And I think for Vermeule, there's kind of four steps of transition. The first is you've got to create a community of people that understand how toxic liberalism is. Okay? And they're clearly doing that. Um, and then the second one is you need to get people in positions of authority, and that's clearly what they're doing too, in terms of normalizing the support of the administrative state among young Catholics, also um, developing a new kind of legal strategy, a new form of legal interpretation. Um, and I'm not saying he's not sincere about the legal view, but I do think there's a partly spiritual goal of common, his common good constitutionalism. Okay. Then he has a story, not unlike Deneen's story, about how liberalism is going to destroy its own legitimacy. 
not unlike, although they don't draw this analogy, I think they should, the way that the Soviet Union's ideology collapsed. Importantly for Vermeule, when the state's legitimacy collapses, the state itself does not collapse. The, the bureaucracies become vacant, but then other groups can move in, just like what happened with the Russian state, right? The Russian state didn't collapse, but it was vacated to some, a large extent by Marxists. So their thought is liberalism's probably going to do that. We don't know when, but we should be ready. And then the final step is, look, when liberalism's delegitimized itself, then we kind of move in. Now, there's a bunch of problems, <laughs> but I think that's the basic story. It's build the community, staff the state, the dominant ideology breaks down, and then you can kind of move in a lot like what happened with um, the, Soviet, the Soviet Union, I think is, is, is a model I'm surprised they don't say more about. Uh Okay, but a little more specific uh, a question. La last question for you, Kevin. What do you think are the prospects for the integralist staffing of liberal institutions? I mean, is, is, does this have a prayer? Your, your opinion. No. Um, I think the most they're going to do is kind of uh, strengthen the new right in various ways and bring kind of Viktor Orban-type tactics to... Um, to, to the Republican Party and also normalize a kind of more pro-state um, judiciary uh, on the right. Those are the major effects that I would predict. The big problem is not, it's not just political in terms of them capturing the state. The bigger problem is the church. I mean, the church has 5,600 bishops and none of them are openly integralist. And so to get to a point, I mean, it's a global church is a billion people. This is not 15th or 14th or 13th century Western Europe, right? And so there's just too much diversity in the church there's too much invested in the protection of religious liberty as one as a matter of human rights. Um, you're just going to have to persuade and change the church in so many ways that by the time they succeeded, the underlying cultural conditions could be radically different. And so I think ultimately it's very, very, very unrealistic. There's one more thing that's unrealistic, which is that even if you could convince the church, you'd have to get a state to obey it. And given the relative power of church and state, that just seems to me, I don't know, I don't mean to be rude, but ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, I think any true conservative Catholic, like someone who's genuinely conservative temperamentally, should just not be on board with this view at all. But it also has appeal to the new right, which I see more as counter-revolutionary than conservative. Right. The book is All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. Professor Vallier. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.